Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing the continued growth in funding by venture capital investors, private equity firms, and even traditional banks interested in the newest technologies in payments, banking, and wealth management. After a record-breaking 2018, investment activity continues to be strong in 2019 across the globe as new startups take aim at traditional banks and credit unions that are slow to update back offices, change outdated business models, embrace advanced analytics, and keep up with the changing consumer expectations. For a perspective on the changing fintech marketplace and trends towards platforms and banking as a service, and how the market may evolve over the near and long term, I'm joined today by Dan Rosen, founder and general partner of Commerce Ventures, a VC firm focused on fintech, payments, and commerce ecosystems. Some of Commerce Ventures' recent investments include Bill.com, FI Navigator, MX, Casisto, Marquetta, and others. So Dan, you've been the founder and general partner of Commerce Ventures, and it looks like 2019 has been your most aggressive year to date with, I think, 15 or so deals valued at over $300 million. What's been your primary focus in 2019? Where's most of your investment and thought process gone towards? What area of the, the whole financial services industry? Real quick background. We've been around as a firm seven years, and our focus splits across kind of two areas. We call it the commerce continuum, but it spans infrastructure enablement technologies for the retail and financial services industry. So it's important to set that stage. So we understand you understand that we'll probably I know we'll probably just be talking about primarily financial services. But as you mentioned, you know, with with the PayPal announcement of acquiring Honey, you can see how folks in the payments and financial services space care a lot about the sort of commerce and what's going on in retail. But I said that preamble just so I can sort of box in my answer into kind of stuff relating to financial services and banking. So within the fintech space, we've spent a lot of time this year looking at infrastructure for enablement of, you know, next generation banking. So people call that banking as a service, you know, so we've done a pretty in-depth review of of all the players in banking as a service. We've looked at a lot of opportunities in real-time payments infrastructure, and, you know, we've been spending a lot of time on things in the healthcare payment space, uh, or maybe said differently, healthcare meets financial services. Of those three areas that we were thematically trying to attack, we've only actually been able to find investments to make, to complete, new investments to complete in the healthcare meets financial services space. So we've invested in a couple companies there. The deals are not yet announced, so I can't mention them by name, but we're really excited about those two investments. We think we're close on maybe an investment or two in those other two categories I mentioned, infrastructure for real-time payments as well as you know potentially a banking as a service player. But those are the themes we've been prosecuting against this year. Now, obviously, not everything we do is based upon thematic, proactive analysis and, and research. A lot of the job is reacting to things people put in front of you. So we've also invested in a couple of companies that are providing technology and infrastructure for lending and credit. And we're definitely looking for additional companies in that space, especially around servicing and collections. We think there's an obvious need in the market today, but also you know there'll be a lot more demand from financial institutions as you know we see credit quality decline. So that's or, or or loan quality decline, I should say. 
So that definitely an area of interest for us as well. Yeah, and you mentioned that just happened today. PayPal just paid a, a pretty hefty sum for uh, the coupon browser extension, Honey. Is this a competitive response to what is obviously a still very heated payments ecosystem space? It's hard to know exactly what's going on inside the you know, sort of strategy group and the, the minds of the folks running PayPal. But I, I would guess, you know, if you're PayPal, you recognize that payments itself is over time, of course, going to become commoditized. There's a lot of growth opportunity still in you know, kind of electronic payments like competing with cash and check, of course. But I think they have to recognize, and I think over the years they've had made previous forays into value above and beyond the payment transaction. But this is obviously a very, very meaningful bet you know, just in terms of the dollar amount. If you look at all the consolidation that's been occurring in payments and banking infrastructure, you know, the processors, Fiserv and, and FIS, you know, buying very large merchant acquiring businesses, global payments and TSIS coming together. It's clear that this world is consolidating. And my suspicion is that if you're a large payment processor, you have to be thinking about adjacencies and ways to escape or expand beyond the borders of just providing pipes from moving money. So the answer to your question, yeah, I would guess that's probably a big part of the motivation. And if I look at Honey, I think the numbers that you know, were quoted, like something like 100 million users, there's real scale there. So you could see why there's an attraction to a business that has that kind of scale if you're PayPal. So the question remains whether or not they'll be able to stitch the businesses together in a way that makes a lot of sense. But it seems as though the reaction from buy side and, and sell side research uh, has been pretty positive. You know, you talk about the issue of scale and the importance of scale. Uh, you know, a lot of the fintechs that most of us are familiar with in the retail space, there's really been a lack of scale in many cases and as well as a lack of traditional revenue. Should fintech firms be worried about going forward and is that something that, as an industry, provides an opportunity for financial institutions actually to partner and to collaborate with these firms to make it so that they can get revenue in more of a traditional way with scale? The answer to the first question is an unqualified yes. The consumer fintech industry should be concerned about lack of durable revenue and profit models that are sustainable. I think whether or not partnering with incumbents solves that problem is a different question in my view. So a long time ago, the very first investment I made in, in the financial services ecosystem was back right as we were falling into the financial crisis in late 2008. And we invested in a, what was probably the very first neobank of the modern era called Perk Street, which you may remember, I'm not sure. But since then, I've learned a ton about why challenger banks or otherwise called neobanks can succeed or fail. And I think there's, I think, a fair bit of mischaracterization about what these businesses are and the heavy funding that is going into the broad financial challenger space, I think, is, is probably going to find poor returns, if returns at all. Now, maybe there'll be a few players that end up being successful, but it is very, very difficult to build a durable, long-term, independent business in the financial services space built on venture capital. It's even harder to build that business if the startup is not technically a chartered financial institution. So I think most of the players out there who are aiming to attack banks as neobanks or wealth management or investing, if they're not already regulated the same way as those institutions, they probably don't even have a, a fighting shot. So the folks who I think are really onto something are the folks who actually are taking the time to buy a bank or you know, become a bank. It's a hard road. And at the end of the day, the laws of valuation 
math, I think, end up, you know, taking those businesses back to the multiples of the institutions they're competing with. But all that preamble is to say that as I learned a lot about the way this industry functions, I developed this hypothesis that most challengers eventually end up pivoting all the way to trying to be enablers. And it's a result of realizing that you have to partner with at least one financial institution to launch a competitive, say, banking service. Eventually, you realize that distribution is really difficult. So you think about, can we resell through some of financial institutions that have scale in terms of distribution? And eventually, the sort of recognition that what you've built that's interesting is really some interface innovations, potentially, you know, some technology underneath that. And why wouldn't you become a software business and license that or enable that, you know, other institutions to modernize their interfaces who already have a bunch of customers. And so if you believe that that, I call that the fintech arch, I don't really talk a lot about it, but it sort of looks like a Gartner hype cycle. But if you think that startups that are challengers take that path, then why wouldn't you just start by investing in infrastructure and enabler businesses from the get-go, which is really what we do. So it's much easier if you architect your platform to be multi-tenant and to serve and to be B2B focused from day one. So we've seen a number of big tech firms in the last month expand their platforms to include financial services, Apple, Google, Facebook, even Uber being the most notable. How does this change the VC market from your perspective? Or does it? You mean that they are like competition to infrastructure and enablers in the space or that there are competitions to banks? Probably both in certain spaces. You know, what they're doing is, you know, with the partnering, they can change the competitive landscape at the same time. They can change the way that the infrastructure is the most efficient infrastructure as well. So let me try to answer the two questions separately. So I think in terms of infrastructure, I would expect that some of those at-scale tech players, Amazon, for sure, Google, Microsoft, they're definitely heavy, heavy focus on enabling financial services as a provider of cloud infrastructure. And my guess is they will, if they haven't already, they'll develop other types of services and solutions on top of that or around that to be able to further monetize those relationships. With that said, I think a lot of those solutions will be fairly horizontal in nature, you know, just maybe slightly customized for financial services or delivered in a certain way for financial services. It's hard for me to imagine that those companies at their scale would invest in the types of solutions that are built by companies we tend to invest in because by definition, what they're enabling usually ends up starting off looking like a small market opportunity. And it's only over time that it becomes clear that it's huge. And I'd say, you know, there are options to that, like, you know, issuer processing or something like that, which has been a big opportunity for a long time or merchant acceptance and merchant processing both sort of big areas. But even still, it's you know, hard for you to imagine that we haven't seen any way any of those players get directly into those spaces, even in spite of the fact that Google bought TXVIA, which was you know, ostensibly an issuer processor for prepaid many years ago. So I would guess that you know, maybe they'll provide infrastructure at the sort of really horizontal utility level. I don't know. I don't expect in the near term that they'll be competitive with a lot of our portfolio companies in terms of uh, enablers, but you never know for sure. And then I try to answer the other part of your question, which is, will they have an impact on, you know, competitive impact on banks? I think the answer there is an unqualified yes. So if I think about the most viable challenge that can be mounted against banking and retail banking today, and really even against the top 10 or 15 players, but certainly will hurt the folks in the middle, 
it's the bank of Amazon. If Amazon launches a, a DBA and you know gives people a reasonable incentive, like say five percent back for things that you spend on your DDA linked debit card, like I think the game is almost over, right? They've shown with Prime that they can get extraordinary adoption across the American populace. And if you're an Amazon customer and you're not using their credit card today and you qualify, you're kind of just wasting money. So I think that value proposition of somebody having a checking account that's very close to where they spend is really intriguing. And so folks like Apple and Amazon, maybe Google, I think there's, you know, they certainly have this sort of scale of distribution to get eyeballs. You know, people don't spend money on Google very much as consumers, but certainly on resulting sites. But PayPal, I mean, there's a number of these tech players that I think will have a really meaningful impact on the shape and the you know complexion of the retail banking industry and even as soon as three to five years from now, if they invest in it and, and put their will to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, you look at an Amazon, they make their money in a different way. So if they give anything away, traditional banks can't respond because they don't have that much money in the traditional checking account. So it's, as you said, game over. Um, it's a matter of trust as much as anything else. Yep. You know, it's interesting. You said you've done a lot more investing this year in the healthcare slash fintech space. You know, that's been intriguing because you, you realize that there's many ways that can go. You can do what MasterCard is doing and providing new payment solutions in the healthcare space, but you can also go as far as saying building incentives that can result in better financial status through better healthcare management. You know, everywhere from incenting people to take care of themselves better, but the integration of those two fields, healthcare and finance, is intriguing is there's so many different ways to go. How do you see that maybe playing out in the future without actually giving away with some of the deals you're working on right now? But obviously you think it's a hot area as well. Yeah, the dirty secret of fintech is that you don't have to be investing in something that's science fiction in order to find problems that need to be solved and you can make money solving them. And healthcare is definitely the same. A lot of the processes for, you know, kind of how the patient pays, how the doctor or practice bills, the way that they collect money, a lot of those legacy processes are just super inefficient, whether it's because they're paper-based, they're human intensive, or, you know, just slow. And candidly, the patient experience has been terrible. I think almost across the board, there's very few examples of providers that do a really, really good job of engaging a patient before, during, and after a care experience. And that's the opportunity. So if we sort of think at the top level, the the opportunity is to get the experience right for the consumer or the patient, because an engaged patient will pay, I mean, to the extent that they can. You know, a big portion of uncollectible medical debt is people just not understanding what's due and not paying when they have the money to because they don't understand what the bill is. So there's a big opportunity there. And then, of course, there's plenty of people who I think have a hard time paying for unexpected medical bills. And I think there's a different opportunity there. And you can't necessarily serve everybody with the same sort of fintech-related solution. I think we probably view the starting point as really, can you make the billing better? Can you make the experience of paying better? Maybe can you even make the experience of engaging with a doctor better? And that probably starts in some ways with solutions that aren't even payments at the core, but you know they will wrap a whole set of tools and capabilities that will probably include billing, payments, potentially even lending. So 
I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does because, you know, it's, it's unknown where this is all going to go. But as you said, looking at the fintech space in the traditional sense as a bellwether, you know, those institutions came in being because of the inefficiencies and the poor customer service in banking. It's very much the same in the healthcare space. Those same problems exist, but there's a way to solve this from a financial standpoint. And, you know, funny, over lunch today, we were talking about that exact situation that I get a bill because they didn't connect me to the right insurance card. So now I have to go and figure out a way to make those, you know, pay that bill. But how do I take care of any gap that may exist between what I'm billed for and what my insurance company is going to take care of? There's multiple opportunities there for the in the payment space, let alone in the healthcare space as well. So just maybe one more point on that, just really quick. I think what we should all be remembering is how awesome that first experience was when we got into Uber for the first time and then got out of it and never had to pay. You know, the first time we went to Amazon Go, once you have the app and you walk in, you pick up some stuff and you just walk out or you check into a Hilton on your mobile app and you never stop by the front desk. That's what we're aiming for, right? And it should be across every consumer experience where there is a value exchange required, but where identity and stored payment credentials can be brought to bear to make that experience frictionless. So taking a little bit of a 90 degree turn here, while the VC space has been strong, the appetite for fintech IPOs has been rather soft. What's causing that, do you believe? So I don't agree wholeheartedly with that statement. I think there's been some pretty good IPOs in the fintech space in areas that make sense. So, you know, the ones that are most obvious are payments, right? So Square and Adyen have performed exceptionally well. I think one of our portfolio companies just filed their S1, Bill.com. You know, I can't say anything about them, comment on them uniquely. But I do think, broadly speaking, the payment space, you know, has supported strong businesses going public. And I think they've fared very well in the market as public companies to the extent that they have good businesses uh, or they're, they're well run. You know, I think the point you're making is, well, why haven't there been IPOs in other categories or why have some of the other IPOs, like, say, in lending infrastructure, you know, why have they not done as well? And I think the answer there is that there's a lot of areas within what we call fintech now, but certainly what I used to think of as startup financial services that just aren't as good, you know, kind of business models or maybe just aren't meant to be public companies. So I told you, we commented a little bit about neobanks and kind of the the challenger space. I think so much of the money that's going into fintech is going into challengers. And this very much mirrors the discussions people are having in the public markets, you know, ecosystem in the wake of uh, WeWork. How do we think about valuing challengers? And I would just tell you my perspective, and I think people at my firm share this, is challengers at scale will be valued very similarly to the businesses they're challenging. Yep. And when you do the math on that, it's just very difficult for challengers to get to the scale at which they can be public, you know, at the multiples that they'll be valued at that are relevant and, and consistent with their peer group that they're challenging without raising a ton of venture capital dollars. So I think that's why you see a dearth of IPOs in the broader you know, quote unquote, fintech space or startup financial services space. I do think you're going to see a lot of inventory available for IPOs in financial infrastructure. So, you know, in our portfolio, you know, you mentioned a number of 
portfolio of companies that we have that are at scale. We have a number of companies that I think you know have the shot at becoming an independent public company because they have durable, very predictable, repeating, recurring revenues. They're mostly SaaS businesses or subscription businesses or very predictable revenue businesses. So those are the types of businesses that I think are well-suited for the public markets at the right scale. And finally, God, these podcasts go very quickly. As we look to 2020, what bold trend or prediction could you provide for next year that you think may happen next year or next year and beyond? I think we're on the cusp now of a fantastic wave of liquidity. Now, it does rely on what happens in the public markets and what happens with the economy. But to the extent that the economy stays buoyant, I think we're going to see much more aggressive uh, liquidity in the fintech space, especially in the enablement and infrastructure area. So this year has been the kind of mega merger of the incumbents, kind of that's been the theme. I think next year, there's a good shot that there'll be a lot more of the PayPal honey types of deals, as a lot of these large mega incumbents have the ability now to acquire enablement and capability players. That's one prediction I would expect. It's kind of ex- interesting that she's in who has more capital available than the Apples, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons of the world. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. And some of these companies, like an Uber, may have to do some of this from a survival basis overall from a, a revenue standpoint. But Dan, I'll tell you what, it's great to talk to you. I'm, I'm, it's, it feels like there's always so much left on the table because the whole space is so active that, you know, I, f- I feel like sometimes we're running all over the place. But as I mentioned to you, we had the interview set up and, geez, two pieces of news hit, you know, before our interview. And you put those in there about, you know, between uh, the PayPal and Honey as well as uh, we didn't even talk about the Schwab TD Ameritrade. But, you know, it's obviously a very active marketplace. But I really thank you for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. And Dan, finally, how would people get a hold of you if they want to get a hold of you? It's really simple. Dan at commerce.vc. That's my email address. That's the best way. It's always better if you can get a referral from somebody I know, just so I can make sure I recognize the email address and you know respond as quickly as possible. But you know, I try to be responsive to everybody, regardless of whether or not I recognize the email address. Again, thank you very much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, just rated as a top 10 banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Bridget Coyne, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you 
and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.